question I have for you. Are you a bus? In the sports world, the term bus means, usually it typically refers to an athlete who's a first-round draft pick coming out of college, maybe even high school, and they're destined for greatness. Um, they have a lot of hype around them. Um, it seems like they'll contribute to the franchise. They have the skill set that the team might need. But after a year or two, after five years, seven years, ten years, um, they don't live up to the hype. They are seen as lackluster. They're seen as someone who is maybe a disappointment or an upset, even a failure. And once they retire, their career is characterized as being a bust. There are Christians who are like this, spiritual bust. They start off strong for Christ. They're on fire. They're evangelizing. They're witnessing. They're serving solid believers, right? But then maybe another year or so, maybe two years, maybe three years, 10 years, 15 years, um, they grow cold. Something happened. Um, they hit a spiritual roadblock. And they had all the potential. You, you saw them. They seemed like, man, God could really use that individual. But they hit a roadblock, and usually that roadblock is due to unrepentant sin. Today, we'll look at a tragic figure in Scripture named King Saul, a true spiritual bust. The title for this sermon is called Downward Spiral. We will examine four stages of a spiritual downward spiral due to unrepentant sin so that we as believers understand the serious danger of unrepentant sin. To always prioritize repentance when we sin because unrepentant sin will hinder your intimacy with God. Unrepentant sin will destroy your life. Unrepentant sin will keep you from experiencing blessings from God. So we will do this through examining an event in the life of King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So if you please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And we're going to look at the first stage. So there are four stages of, of unrepentant sin. You know, first, you compromise sin. You know, second, you disguise sin. Third, you rationalize sin. And then fourth, you desensitize sin. I'm, I'm trying to spit bars for y'all, man. I'm trying to rhyme. You know, I usually I do alliteration, but this time I'm trying to get a little rhyme scheme going for you guys, all right? So 1 Samuel chapter 15, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Samuel, then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, for he showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul... And the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. 
Now, King Saul came from a wealthy family. He is described as a choice and handsome man. And there is not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders up, he was taller than anybody. You can read that in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 through 2. So he had it all. Okay, he's a high-value man. You know, you, got, you guys know that phrase, you know, tall, dark, and handsome. Okay, that was King Saul. Okay, he wasn't some broke, short, light-skinned, ugly brother like me. Complete opposite, okay? King Saul, though, he was Israel's first king after the Israelites demanded prophet Samuel for a king. So Samuel, he was a judge. He was the leader of Israel, in a sense. And um, the people, they're realizing, you know, Samuel, you're getting too old for this. I know your sons are to, you know, take your spot, but your sons are a hot mess. You know, you got some hood rat kids. We don't want them. You're getting too old. Get us a king. And Samuel's like, man, we got a king, though. You know, Yahweh, God, he's our king. But the people are like, no, we want to be like the other people. We need a human representative, right? We need, we need a leader. Samuel was frustrated with this. He prayed to God about it, and God said, yeah, go ahead and anoint. I have a king that you're going to anoint, but tell the people this. They're going to regret this decision. Tell them that taxes are going to be raised high. Tell them that your, your sons, the next generation, are going to be drafted into war. Tell them that their daughters are going to be servants of the king. They're basically not going to like it, and they're going to crowd to me and say, God, you know, you know, we don't want a king anymore. Tell, tell them that. So Samuel went over and told the Israelites that. What did the Israelites say? Okay, get us a king, like we said. So Samuel went out, prayed to God again. God said, anoint this man named Saul. He's a Benjamite. He's a shepherd boy. Go see him and, and anoint him. And once Saul approached Samuel, or when Samuel approached Saul, I'm going to get these names mixed up, S names. So Samuel approached Saul, and he said, God has called you, anointed you to be king. Saul said, me? Really? I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. We're like the smallest tribe. We're we a scrub tribe, right? So he started off very humble, and God used Saul. You know, Saul proclaimed the word of God. He prophesied. And then he, he was pretty successful in war as well because they defeated the Ammonites in battle. So Saul was a godly influence. He was successful not only because of his humility, but his God-honoring life that was characterized by devoting himself to God. You can read all that from 1 Samuel chapter 9 to 10. But then he started tripping. He started, you know, smelling himself a little bit. Started getting big at it. You know, he started, he started, you know, popping his collar. You know what I'm saying? So he started getting a little arrogant. He started having so much confidence in himself that he wasn't tripping off having faith in God. In chapter 13, the fall of Saul begins. Started being disobedient. Started in a way, you know, filling himself. And then chapter 14, making stupid decisions, unwise decisions. I'm not going to get into details on that, but you can read that on your own. However, here in chapter 15, Samuel reminds Saul that God anointed you in verse 1, right? Like, remember, God anointed you. This is the word of God. Basically, Samuel is telling them, don't do anything stupid. Listen to what I'm saying, because the previous times you've been acting out, you've been tripping. But listen to this. God wants you to wipe out the Amalekites, okay? Men, women, children, infants, ox, sheep, all the animals as well. This is one of those scriptures that unbelievers love to point out, by the way, right? You know, why would God command something like this? And, you know, I'm not going to spend too much time on this trying to explain God because I don't have to. Uh, There is, we have to understand that God, what makes sense to God doesn't really make sense to us sometimes because he's God and we're finite human beings, Um, But we have to see here that God is promising something that he talked about years ago. So when the Israelites, when they're leaving the Exodus, right, after after, um, they left um, Egypt, the Amalekites, there are some wicked people who were 
taking the women, taking the children, taking the elderly, the vulnerable, the Israelites from behind and killing them. So God is fulfilling his promise. And this was 300 years ago, but the Amalekites were still wicked. They're a wicked society. We have to remember that, that, that there's such thing as national sin. Okay, when a whole country generally is acting out in wild, just straight up blatant disobedience, the whole nation can be disciplined. We see that in scripture. We see that in history. And we have to remember, too, that none of us really deserve to live anyway. All right. You know, God can do as he please. It's, it's, that's why every day, every time we breathe, it's, it's God's grace because we don't deserve air. We don't deserve breath. OK, we don't deserve life. Right. But I'm not going to spend too much on that point. There's books and articles and lectures you could read on that point. But you guys might be asking, well, what about the animals? What's the point of, you know, God commanding um, Saul to kill the animals? Well, back then, animals were seen as money. They weren't, um, they didn't have any coinage yet during this time, no paper currency, no dollars or anything like that. So God is basically saying, look, burn the money when you get there, all right? Because God, he wanted them to understand that this is not a victory for you to attain um, money or even women or slaves, because sometimes that's what, that's the other alternative. This is something that for the purpose of me fulfilling my promise and executing justice. So we see that Saul, he planned out his attack. He told the Kenites to move out the way. Who are the Kenites? Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. That's, that's their ancestor. So he said, like, you know what? You guys are cool. You guys never had no problem with us. You guys helped us out. You know, we just want to give you some time to move out the way because we're going we're to get the Amalekites, all right? So you guys are cool. Once they moved out the way, King Saul and the Israelites came through, defeated the Amalekites, okay? Defeated them, but didn't completely obey. Because what happened? King Saul kept the king alive. King Saul and the Israelites kept the good sheep, kept the good cows, kept the good oxen and things like that, the good livestock. They didn't fully obey God, which means what? Total disobedience. There's no such thing as partial obedience. It's just disobedient. See, we can't be a pick and choose type Christian. We can't be a trail mix type Christian where we get to choose certain things in the Bible. It's like, I follow that, but that right there, I don't don't really got to do. And sometimes we compromise because we think we know better than God. We say like, oh, you know, I'm a shack up with my girl, you know, test drive and things like that. I think that's wise, you know, instead of just trying to, you know, wait for intimacy and things like that, moving them together and then it won't work out, you know. Sometimes that's what we think we, that's what we think we doing. We compromise. Sometimes we, we compromise so we're like, oh, we can have a little bit of sin. It ain't no big deal. Or we could get close to sin. You know, we could, it's kind of like, you know, if you ever go on a cliff, if you want to be as safe as possible, you don't go close to that cliff. But what do we do? I mean, compromise. We all up on that cliff. You know, we got our head hanging. We are, we're taking pictures and selfies and things like that. Or like with fire. We want to get close to the fire and things like that. But sin is something that we need to avoid and stay as far away as possible. If I ask you, hey, if you put your feet in the water, in the pool, are you in the water? Some of you will say technically, no, it's just my feet. Some of you will say technically, yes, because um, I have a body part in there. But let me tell you something. You put one pinky in a pool of sin or one toe in a pool of sin. Guess what you're in? Sin. Okay, so we can't just come around and just like, oh, it's okay, you know, just compromise a little bit. No. Okay. Sin is something dangerous. And why did King why did King Saul keep the king alive? Because, well, typically he just wanted to show off back then when um, armies defeated a certain nation and they bring the king back, they have a little parade. The king was like the trophy. You know how the Lakers or Dodgers, when they win a championship, they show him the trophy around like, yeah, we won this, we did that. That's what King Saul wanted to do. That's why he kept the king. So here's the thing. When you compromise sin, when you add a little bit in there, 
your flesh wants to do something else. Not just compromise sin, but disguise sin. And that's the next point, disguise sin, verse 10 to 14. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? So we see verse 10 through 11, you know, it said God regretted that he has made Saul king. This may seem like God changes his mind, or he, he made a mistake, but he doesn't. This is what's called an anthropomorphism, okay? That's a theological term to basically refer to um, God in a human-like way, attributing human-like characteristics to God. God is communica- communicating to us in a way that we understand, okay? This is divine sorrow. God is expressing his heart. You know, he's expressing his kind of like his frustrating. He's upset. He's sad. And then we see that Samuel was distressed, cried out to God all night, possibly interceding for Saul. And after a night of weeping, Samuel gets up to meet King Saul. Samuel had a difficult night, but in the morning there was more bad news. What happened? He heard that King Saul set up a monument for himself. This probably isn't an idol or a statue of himself or anything like that, but it's probably like a pillar where um, most kings did this back in ancient times, where they just write down what happened. They record their victory to show off. And this wasn't commanded by God. Like I said, Saul was filling himself a little too much. And another thing about King Saul, if you read about him, he's a very insecure man. Um, he's probably the most insecure person in Scripture if you read it, despite his kingship, despite his power, despite his um, successful military um, success, despite being married and having children and um, just being rich. He got it all. Very insecure person. So then he's shown his, he's setting up his own monument to try and please people, which we do sometimes, right? We set up our own little monuments. No, look at me. Look, look what I'm doing and all that, right? But we have to remember that this victory was to point to God. He is to get all the glory. But King Saul here is glorifying himself. And then Samuel came to confront King Saul. And what happened? Well, King Saul having this poker face. He acting like ain't nothing going on. Like, oh, man, blessings are you, Samuel. I carried out. I did the commandments of God. I've been obedient. He's patting himself on the back and everything. All right? And then Samuel said, oh, really? You must think I'm stupid, huh? Okay. Why do I hear animals? And it's interesting how he said he only heard. He didn't see. Which probably implies that, you know, Saul, he was hiding the animals. You know, he had it in the closet. He had it under the couch and stuff like that. He, had, he put a blanket over them, you know, doing some weird stuff, trying to hide. Trying to disguise his sin. Bible says that sin will find you out. Bible also says, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. We see this often, right? You know, with scandals, it just pops up. And there are times where sin could be hidden for weeks, for months, for years, for decades, but it comes out. Some of us are good at hiding sin ourselves. We might not be as stupid as Saul was, but we hide sin. Maybe we 
maybe we, we, we lie a little bit like Saul. Maybe, maybe, maybe we, we, we try to avoid having close friends, you know? Maybe, maybe we avoid, you know, um, you know, allowing people to get in our lives. You know, maybe we come to church, you know, late, leave early because we don't want to have people all up in our grill and stuff like that. Like, you no, know, I'm, I'm bouncing, you know, right before benediction and things like that. Sometimes we hide our sin. We play a facade as if, like, oh, we're, we're all righteous and godly and things like that. But there's a lot of issues going on. All right, we can't disguise our sin. And sometimes when we disguise our sin, well, I would say all the time, it actually manifests that we're more concerned about our appearance before man than our soul and our relationship with God. And that's something that Saul always dealt with. He's always trying to hide. He's always making excuses and things like that. So, you know, what, what can you do when you get caught in sin? What, what, what can you do? You know, you, 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 could, you could just say, hey, you got me, all right, you got me, okay? I confess my sin, I'm, like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm acting stupid right now. Uh, I understand the consequences that I'm about to receive right now. Or you could just give excuses, rationalize your sin. What did King Saul do? He did the latter, which, is the, which leads to the next stage of the downward spiral of unrepentant sin. You compromise sin, you disguise sin. Then what else? You, you rationalize sin, you make excuses. Verse 15 to 23. What does he say? Saul said, they have brought them. He said, they, what's that, what does that imply? Blame shifting, right? They have brought them from the Amalekites. He's talking about the soldiers, the people. He's the king. How in the world, you're the leader. How in the world are you going to blame people under you, subordinates under you? For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. It shows you how far away King Saul is with this intimacy with God. He said, your God. He didn't say, my God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. You know, we, we, we killed the rest of them, though. You know what I'm saying? We, we, we killed the rest. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And, and he said to speak. Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes? You know, meaning you, you, were, you were humble. You, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I've brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from king. Saul, blame shifting, he starts off saying, they, the people, brought the animals from the Amalekites to sacrifice. He's blame shifting, even though he's king. He gets that from our dad, from Adam. When he got sinned, what did, what did he do? God called him, like, Adam, who told you you're a nigga? What, what are you doing? And then, then Adam said, like, oh, it, it was the woman you gave me. Okay, it was a woman, and it was you. She gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Blame shifting. And Adam, in that sense, he's to be the leader, right? He's to be the head, Correct? Amen? Look, husbands here to say amen about their wives and stuff. Like, you know, wives are like, yeah, I know he the head, but I'm the neck. I turn that head in any direction I wanted to. You know, so we know who's boss, right? 
And it, it, this is the same thing similar that happens with Aaron, right? When, when the people asked Aaron, they told Aaron, like, hey, you know, let's make a God. You know, while Moses is gone, he, he tripping. I don't understand it. And when Moses confronted him about what happened, Aaron's like, oh, they, they just brought the jewelry to me, and I just threw in the fire, and, and a calf just, you know, came up out the fire, you know. And here's the thing about trying to rationalize your sin, okay? It, it, you end up sounding stupid. I think we all experienced times when we got in trouble as a kid with our parents and we got caught in a lie, we got caught cheating or something like that. And we were trying to say like, you know, but this happened or but, you know, like, oh, but they did it or like, you know, like, you know, and, you know, parents just looking at you stupid, like, you know, this brother lying like crazy, you know, you're trying to rationalize your sin and trying to disguise your sin and things like that. And you get caught anyway. So Saul, he's not even, he's not even saying that what he did is sin. He's saying, I did obey, but the people, excuses, excuses, excuses. And what's interesting is that he said he, he admitted that he brought the king. The king is still alive, but he doesn't count that as disobedience. We do that sometimes. Sometimes we compare our own faults, our own sin, you know, to other people's sin. And we think like, well, you know, they, they look what they did, though. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, we try and justify and rationalize our sin. Okay. You know, we do that sometimes. You know, we watch Netflix, Hulu shows and stuff like that. Sex scenes, nudity, all up on there, right? And then we say, like, well, it's not porn. No, it's, not on por- it's, not on por- it's not on Pornhub, right? So it's not porn. We want to justify and compare and things like that. But, no, it's, it's still immorality. You know, why are you trying to rationalize and justify it and things like that? And you want to say, like, oh, it has good acting. It's a story on it and things like that. But that's affecting you. You see, we can't play this comparison game and think of that, oh, our sin is, is, is minute compared to other sins. Saul's not even, compa- he's not even saying that his sin is sin. Verse 22, Samuel then told Saul that obedience is better than sacrifice. Here's the thing, because sacrifice can be routine, actually. I mean, the, the Old Testament, the Israelites, they were guilty of this a few times. They were just sacrificing animals. This is, this is nothing. You know, this is easy. This is routine and things like that. But they weren't obedient in other areas of their lives. Same thing with us. For at least most of us, right? It's easy to sacrifice our Sundays. You know, we've been doing this for years. Like, this is easy. I could, I could come to Sunday, you know, every, every Sunday I'm here, okay? But what about the other days? All right? How, how, how are you obedient, right? And then he says, see... Disobedience, rebellion, arrogance, it's the same as witchcraft and idolatry. Samuel was trying to let Saul to not downplay his sin. Okay, your sin holds equal weight to these other sins that we deem as abominations, as perversions. Don't downplay what you did. It's just like witchcraft. It's just like doing some dark occult magic or something like that. Your pride, your arrogance, your rebellion, your disobedience is the same thing as some witch in the woods doing curses and things like that, doing voodoo or whatnot. It's the same thing. Let me ask you, though, do you make excuses for your sins? Do you justify your sin? Do you defend your sin? Do you even call your sin sin? Because sometimes we, we do things and we don't even call it sin. Like, we, we don't call it adultery cheating anymore. It's called entanglement, okay? No, that's adultery, all right? And sometimes we get soft on the terminology we use when it comes to sin. There are certain sins we don't call abominations anymore. We don't call perversions. You know, like, like the whole homosexual thing. We don't call it that. It's called same-sex attraction. You know, it's called being gay. No, homosexual or sodomite, if you want to get real biblical, right? It's part of the reason why we, 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 we get, you know, we struggle with certain sins because we go soft on them. We don't want to call it what it is. 
We, 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 we downplay it. And sometimes we do that with the mental sins. See, we don't call things like discontentment sin anymore. We don't call things like envy and bitterness, impatience, sin anymore. Right? We just say, like, you know, it's just, it's just an issue I have. It's just, you know, a mental thing that I got going on. No, call it what it is. You know, it's sin. And that, I believe that's one of the best ways we can, you can overcome our sin. If you, if you admit that it's wrong, if you admit that it offends a holy God. And sometimes we downplay our sin to the, to the point to where we just say it's an accident. It's a mistake. No, it's not. And then let me give you an example of what a mistake is. Okay? A mistake is if you mispronounce someone's name. Okay, or you got someone's name wrong, like, oh, I thought your name was Terrell, it's Terrence, sorry about that, okay? That's a mistake, that's an accident, okay? But you taking a bottle of yak and take it to the head and you are drunk and tore up, that ain't no accident. It's drunkenness, it's sin, call it what it is. Or, 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 may, or, may, or maybe, maybe, maybe this is an accident, okay? Maybe you're in bumping or bumper traffic, right? You sneeze, hit the person in front of you, uh-oh, oopsie, okay? That's an accident, that's a mistake, right? But you, on Instagram, sliding into Instagram models' DMs. And let's ask some things. Maybe you marry, right? And, and you're trying to ask a date, and you send a news. That ain't no mistake. Call it what it is. Sin. An accident is something where, like, maybe you're you working at a restaurant, okay? okay? You got one plate is oxtails, one plate is French toast or something like that. You're trying to serve it to the people, and, and you drop it. Oops, I messed up. That happens, right? Mistake. But you at work, stealing toilet paper out of the janitor's closet and taking it home and using it for your own, that ain't no mistake. Call it what it is. Stealing. Sin. You might think it's funny, but 2020, y'all was wilding with the toilet paper, though. So don't front like, oh, this is far off. No. We can't make excuses. And we can't make excuses when certain sins are hard for us. You know, men, we can't say like, oh, you know, this less thing, you know, it's hard to overcome. You know, there's billboards everywhere, you know, girls, cleavage, booty shorts on, stilettos on, man. It's hard. They wear things tight, things like that. Like, yeah, it could be hard, but bounce your eyes, man of God. We can't come up and just make excuses and say, oh, this is, you know, this is too hard. This is difficult. Or this is just a sin. And this is what I'm going to struggle with for the rest of my life. You know, you're not battling. You're not fighting your sin. You're accepting it. And that's dangerous. Sin is never justifiable. You can't give a good reason as to why you cuss someone out. So I'm like, you know, he started or, or she didn't do that or say that. No, I would not cuss that person out. I ain't do nothing wrong. They started it. You can't justify your sin. See, here, here's a, here, we can't rationalize and defend sin. Here's the main difference between King Saul and King David. Okay, King David confessed his sin. What does King Saul do? Over and over again, I, I encourage you guys to do a character study on King Saul. What does he do? He makes excuses. Always making excuses all the time. Brother got more excuses than a brother going to jail, right? Just making excuse, excuse, excuse after excuse. Rationalizing sin. And the lives of David and Saul are very parallel. They're both shepherd boys. They're all, you know, good-looking men. They, they both, you know, were successful military strategists. Both did some scandalous things. But what's the difference? King David confessed sin, heartbroken over sin, understood and accepted the consequences of his sin. He wasn't sitting up trying to make excuses and rationalize and things like that. But here's the thing. It doesn't just stop there when we compromise sin or when we disguise sin or when we rationalize sin. 
What's next in the downward spiral? You desensitize sin. Let's read verse 24 to 35. Let's try and read the rest of this. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who's better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made woman chalice, so shall your mother be chalice among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Verse 25, we see, finally, Saul admits his sins. He asked Samuel, you know, forgive him for his sins, and he says that he wants to return back to worship the Lord. Samuel said, I ain't going back with you. Okay, the Lord rejected you as king because you rejected the word of God. And when Samuel tried to walk off, Samuel grabbed, Saul grabbed Samuel's robe, and it tore. And Samuel used this as an illustration, saying that the kingdom of Israel will be torn away from you. And it's given to someone who is better than you, <coughs> King David. Samuel tells Saul, the glory of Israel, God is not changing his mind on this decision either. It's done with. So the throne is not going to be carried on to King Saul's son. It's going to be given to a man after God's own heart, which we know is King David. And then we see here how, verse 30, Saul says, I have sinned. He seems repentant, but wait, there is more. Here is how we know his repentance and his confession isn't genuine. He then says, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Verse 31, eventually King Saul just went back with Saul, but we'll see why in a minute. But King Saul did not feel the weight of his sin. He says, like, you know, I, I sinned, but he wouldn't accept the consequences. And it shows you, too, that he cares so much about his appearance. He said, like, yeah, I, I sinned, I've done wrong, but look, can you, come, can you go back with me in, in front of the elders, in front of people? And, 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 you know, no one has to know about this, you know what I'm saying? It could just be between me and you, you know what I'm saying? Sam was like, I'm not, I'm not going back with you. And Saul, he was just probably thinking, like, man, if people know about this, it's going to get messy, you know? If they know about this scandal, this issue with, you know, what happened to me, the Israelites, they're going to be all over the place. That's true, but too bad. You have to experience the consequences of your sins. And people do this now with scandals. You ever hear, you ever see like a pastor or something like that get caught in a scandal? They say like, oh, I apologize. I'm sorry. You know, uh, I wasn't thinking right. 
I'm going to go, you know, counseling, training, things like that. But they don't resign. They don't sit down. They don't, you don't see any consequences. You see this with politicians, right? There's some scandal, and maybe they said something, you know, whether racist or something, um, you know, just did something bad. And they, they announce it. They say, like, oh, you know, I, I messed up. I, I've done wrong. I'm, I'm going to take um, sensitivity training and, you know, go to therapy. But they don't resign because they don't see the weight of their sin. And that's how we are sometimes. See, some of us, we, we, we admit we did wrong. But we don't want to accept any repercussions. We don't want to accept any discipline. We don't want to accept any consequences because we care about our image. We care about how people will will perceive us. See, Saul cared about his appearance. It seems like he didn't care too much about his soul. So do we act like this, like our sin is not a big deal? We may talk a good game as if our sin is, you know, horrible, but there is no change. There's no fight against it. Saul compromised sin. He disguised sin. He rationalized sin. And he desensitized sin. And unfortunately, the downward spiral didn't stop here. This isn't the worst of King Saul, by the way. It's bad, but it gets worse from there. Let me give you a, a bonus, two bonus points real quick, real fast. The next downward spiral, after he desensitized sin, he was dominated by sin. His life was dominated by his ego. He was ego-driven to where he was ego-tripping. He was full of pride and arrogance, hatred. And although King Saul had a long reign, he reigned for 42 years. His reign is characterized by hatred, rage, murder, idolatry, witchcraft, and disobedience. And that sin that he was dominated by destroyed him. He ended his life in suicide, killing himself. Now, I know if you're in a life-dominating sin, I'm not saying, oh, it's guaranteed you're going to kill yourself or anything like that. But the end isn't good. The end is tragic. Nothing good comes out of unrepentant sin. This is why we must take sin serious. See, you don't compromise sin. You combat it. You don't disguise it. You confess it. You don't rationalize sin. You repent of it. You don't become desensitized to sin. You detest it. You don't accept sin. You abhor it. You don't, you know, you, you don't coddle sin and be like, well, you, you take out your pocket and all you so cute and you cuddle with it and you do that. It's okay. Everyone all sins, right? I just put it back in my pocket. We all got sin. It's okay if I keep it. No, you kill the sin. You kill it. Okay? You combat against it. And many of us are too comfortable. We come out the house naked. I'm talking about physically naked. Some of y'all be coming out half naked. I'm talking about spiritually. You need to put your armor on. You need to put your armor on. Pray at all times. See, some of us, we know when we sin. We know who get on our nerves, who ticks us off at work. And we have to pray for patience. We have to pray for understanding. We have to pray for reconciliation sometimes. See, see, we know that at the gym, people might be dressing difficult, right? You know, difficult for you. And you might struggle. So what are you going to do? Either you be a man of God and bounce your eyes, go to the gym, or find an alternative, or work out at home, work out at the park, whatever. We can't walk around oblivious and act like we don't have any issues, like we don't got nothing to work on. And as far as killing sin, we kind of see an illustration here in verse 32 to 33. Saul went back to, Samuel went back to Saul. We see why. Verse 32, then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made woman chalice, so shall shall your mother be chalice among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. See, the king of Agad thought, like, oh, you know, the king, Saul, didn't kill me. This prophet, you know, he probably thought Samuel was soft or something. Like, he ain't going to do nothing. He's going to save me. You know, he's going to do his thing. Death isn't, you know, I'm, I'm saved from that. He had it all wrong. 
Samuel. This is a very gory, brutal illustration of judgment that Samuel is really um, demonstrating to Saul. Okay, He sliced King Agag up. He hewed him. He hacked him up as if he's a tree, as if he's a log. Very disgusting. But that's how we are to be with our sin. You need to get gory with it. You need to attack that. You need to attack your flesh. You need to mortify, crucify your flesh. And then verse 34, we see that Samuel and Saul split ways. Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Verse 35, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Saul was a bust. Are you a spiritual bust? You can have all the potential, all the great ideas, giftings, talents, but if you don't have character, if you're not humble, if you don't repent of your sin, if you don't take sin serious, you will fall and miss out on so many blessings and opportunities that God could have gave you. King Saul's life is a tragedy. He missed out. He used to be the standard for the fallen kings of Israel. We should have been talking about King Saul like how we talk about David. Now, we can't know for sure if King Saul was saved or not, according to Scripture. There are some strong arguments for both sides. But here's something that we all need to question ourselves. Do people question your salvation? When they look at your life, is it characterized by obedience or, or, or is it disobedience? Is it, is it characterized more by walking in the spirit or walking in the flesh? Not talking about perfection, but are you, a, are you a man or woman after God's own heart or are you a man or woman after your own heart like how Saul was? Something that we have to think about. See, someone shouldn't be surprised to find out you're a Christian. You know, they should be like, oh, that makes sense. You know, I never see them, you know, cuss or I never hear them be involved in inappropriate jokes. Like, oh, you respect women. Like, you know, he does his job well at work, works hard. You know, someone shouldn't be like, oh, oh, man, he's a Christian. You know, he a digging at the church. Man, that, like, he be negative at the job, complaining. And, you know, he, he be flirting with every single sister in the office. Like, I didn't know he was married, you know, so I'm surprised. You know, that shouldn't be the case for you. See, and, and look, I know we can't fully, I don't want us to like, you know, Judge other people's salvation. I'm, I want you to examine yourself. We're going to take communion in a few minutes. This is something that you can work on. Examine yourself. You know, we can't fully 100% know all the time if someone's saved or not, right? Kind of like in Saul's situation. But what I'm trying to communicate is that we have to be light. There has to be a distinction between us and the world. See, some of us, we're, we're saved, but we're living so much on the edge, full of carnality, like our light is just dim, and there's really no distinction between how we live and how the world lives. Something else that we must remember, too, when it comes to the life of Saul, this walk is a marathon, all right? Maybe some of us were on fire, you know, a year ago when we first got saved, five years ago, 10 years, 30 years ago, or whatever, like that. But we have to remember, we have to always work and keep that fire. You know, we can't just have a good, solid, spiritual burst in the beginning, but end up being a bust. You know, it's all about like, oh, I served in the church before, I did that already. Now we're just sitting around, not doing nothing, not even part of a church, right? We got to keep this going. Now, let me encourage you, though. All right, I know this is kind of convicting sermon, but let me encourage you. This is for you believers first, okay? If you're in any of these stages, whether you're compromising your sin, whether you're trying to hide your sin, whether you're trying to defend your sin or you're desensitized to your sin, there is hope. Regardless of what stage you're in, maybe you have a life-dominating sin. You need to cling to Christ. You're equipped to fight your sin. You have the Holy Spirit indwelt in you. You need to re re rely on the Spirit. Okay, first you need to confess your sin, right? You need to combat your sin and things like that. But you have Christ, you have the Spirit of God, and you have the church. Okay, you have to be transparent with this. 
See, I know what it's like to disguise my sin. I remember back, you know, I don't know if I was saved at the time. I was a new believer, maybe. But I used to come to church late and leave early because I didn't want nobody in my life. All right, I, 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 I want to keep my sin. You know, I want to, I was like, I was like Saul. I know what it's like to be like Saul. I know about this, these stages and things like that. And I just want to give you some practical advice. Like, you got to be real about your sin. See, when I got disciple, I used to get punked. You know, I, I was like military and things like that. Was like, we talk about we want discipleship and accountability and things like that. You need to have someone that will tell it like it is to you. All right, we need that. And Samuel, he was trying to be that person for Saul. But Saul was so prideful and arrogant, he wasn't even listening. So don't be like Saul. Be, be humble with it, right? If you're not a Christian here today, first thing that you need to do is repent of your sin. Because as bad as death is, as tragic as how King Saul died and killed himself and things like that, there's something worse that could happen to you. And that's eternal wrath. That's hell, which we all deserve because of our sin. But I don't want you to think that, oh, you're a sinner. I don't, I don't want that to be the only thing that you walk away from regarding the sermon. But I want you to remember that you have a savior of your sins. And that is the ultimate king, the king of kings, Jesus Christ. He lived that life that none of us could live. Perfect life, flawless, died on the cross for our sins and was rose, risen on the third day for our sins. Now we must turn away from that sin and believe. And, and once we believe in that good news, Christ will enable you to live a life that's very alternating from your previous life and a life dominating by the spirit to walk in newness of life and be used by him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, this narrative regarding um, King Saul, Lord, uh, we thank you that it's a great example for uh, what we are not to do, Lord, regarding our sin. We all struggle with sin in many different ways, in many variety of ways. We, some of us are more inclined to sin more with our tongue, some with our actions, some with our mind, Lord. And we thank you that you're a God who is so gracious to enable, to equip us with what we need to fight our sins, to combat our sin, Lord. And we ask that you um, help us during this fight of sin, Lord. Help us to not compromise, help us to not disguise, help us to not rationalize or become desensitized of sin or to be dominated by sin, Lord. Help us to walk in the spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. Pray for those who are not saved here. Pray that they understand the gospel, the good news that you sent Jesus Christ, your son, who's fully God and fully man, to die for their sins and be risen on the third day. That is how we're justified, not by works, but by faith alone. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.